The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter. I am in my closet in Queens again. And because this is also a very special episode for a reason I'll let you know later, I'm going to do something I've been holding off on for three years. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There used to be this syndicated show back in the 70s, I think it went into the early 80s, called Matinee at the Bijou. Some of you probably remember it. And what it was, was this afternoon show where they would show an old B picture, some real throwaway, you know, cheapy Western or sci-fi picture or something like that. And the idea was supposed to be to recreate what an afternoon at the cinema would have been like in the 30s and 40s. And so before the actual movie, they would actually show a newsreel and an ancient cartoon and often a short I used to love this show, and I used to record it. I used to record the sound from, you know, where the volume came out on my box tape recorder. And one old short that I recorded, and I used to play and play and play, I played this about 4,000 times, was from about 1943. This is the Jimmy Dorsey Band, and the singer is Helen O'Connell. The song is called Rubber Dolly. And I've always thought this was one of the catchiest things ever written. This is quite evanescent, but still, it's a wonderful little tune, and I think a lot of you will like it. And what happens is she sings, and then the band members stand up and interject singing behind her. So that's who all those guys are that you hear in the background. Here is the first part of the wonderful Rubber Dolly, which for me is just a warm, ancient memory. It's like, you know, the the smell of the this or the sound of the that. Well, how about the sound of the rubber dolly? My mommy told me if I was goody that she would buy me a rubber dolly. So don't you tell her I kissed a fella Or she won't buy me that rubber dolly I know I've been up to trick Oh, oh, I'm in a fix I want that dolly Fella, I want him to. Is it the fellow or the dolly or the dolly or the fellow or the devil? 
eons now. I mean, goodness gracious, it's, it's 40 plus years. Eons. It's been bouncing around in my head that as dumb as that little thing is, even the words of something passing like that are full of stories. I've always thought that as mundane as it is, you could take practically every word. That's just been a random thought. It just happens to have been something I've always thought about that song. Linguistics is about just language. It's about just saying stuff, just silly songs. It's not only about prose and oratory, and it really usually isn't about prose and oratory. I've always worried that sharing my little obsession with Rubber Dolly wouldn't feel like a real episode, doesn't really constitute any kind of theme, can't use it as a classroom lesson, as I know some people are using these shows as. It's just too much from my head. But, you know, for posterity's sake, I'm just going to spew it. This, this will be fun, I think. So, here with an etymological exegesis on Rubber Dolly. Mike, please play the first few lines of Rubber Dolly again. My mommy told me if I was goody that she would buy me a Rubber Dolly. Let's just start with Dolly. Where does the word doll come from? How'd that happen? And you know, it's related to something I've mentioned on the show before. Ellen is Nellie. Annie becomes Nan. That's because of people in earlier English saying, mine Ellen. That meant my Ellen. Mine Ellen. Well, after mine becomes my, then mine Ellen starts sounding like my Nellen, my Nellie. And next thing you know, you have these nicknames that start with N. And otherwise, what would the explanation be? If somebody's named Maria, you don't call them Numeria. Well, Ellen, Nellie. And then there are all sorts of reasons that you get these nicknames. There's no one thing. These sound switches sometimes can just be what the ancients thought of as funny. So Robert... Rob, Bob. Rob, Bob, he, he, he. Well, you know, there you go. Richard, Rick. If your name is Rick, then maybe it's Dick. You can imagine that it's kids who came up with these things. Ricky, Dicky, Dicky, Ricky. And so that's where you got Dick. Margaret goes to Meg, and then somebody says, well, <laughs> Maggie, Peggy, Peggy, Maggie, Peg. <laughs> and so you have the Peg. Well, you know what doll is? Dolly is from Dorothy. And you have this R-L switch. So, Dari Dolly, just like Sarah, Sally, Molly. Like, what's the actual name for Molly? Is it Molithan or something? No, it's Mary, Molly. Or back in the old days, more than today, Hal for Harold. There was a character actor in the mid-20th century, Hal March. And, you know, his actual name was Harold. Or actually, my favorite old radio character, the great Gildersleeve, his name, the guy who played him's name was Harold Perry. He was known as Hal Perry. And said, well, Leroy, (laughs) that's how he laughed, Hal Perry. Well, nowadays, we don't call Harold's Hal if we call anybody Harold at all. But in the same way, Dorothy and then Dolly. So it starts out as a play on a name, and it meant sweetheart. And it was just based on Dorothy, when Dorothy was a more common name. And then it's extended in two directions. One, it's so sad the way names for females go. First, it went from sweetheart to frankly slut. But then in another direction, it went from sweetheart to a little dolly. And next thing you know, you shorten it and you've got something called a doll. It's funny, one of my daughter's name is Dolly. And I remember getting Dolly in a different way. The name was Dahlia. 
And the first time I picked her up, I don't know where this came from. I just said, hey, Dolly. It just kind of felt right. And so now her family name is Dolly. And of course, I took her to see Hello, Dolly when it came through New York a few years ago. You know, that musical reminded me that musicals for me are like church. It makes no sense. But when they did the title song, my Dolly was practically standing up. She got it. It's just really something. And so, yeah, you can feel what's coming. But I'm not going to play you Carol Channing singing Hello, Dolly. I mean, that would be kind of tired. You know what I'm going to play? I'm going to play Hello, Dolly in German because I've actually always liked the translation. God, that sounds pretentious, but I actually mean it. And so here is a bit of the title song of Hello, Dolly. And you might already know the words, but here's how it comes out in German. And you can tell it's as good to them and for them as it is for us. So German Hello, Dolly. Hello, Dolly, they call it. Hello, Harry. Oh, hello, Louis. Ich bleib da, man weiß doch, wo man hingehört. Ach Gott, man sieht's, Danny, jeden zieht's, Manny, mal nach Haus, weil ja zum Leben auch ein Sinn gehört. Ich sag mir's ausdrücklich, bleib zu Haus. Glücklich ist ein jeder ja nur da, wo man ihn liebt. Ja, das ist einmalig, dieses Gefühl ist einmalig, weil es das auf der Welt nicht zweimal gibt. What about rubber? So it's a rubber dolly, it's a dolly made out of rubber. Well, rubber means what it means. It's just that we don't tend to think about it. It's a rubbing thing. Rubber is called that because it can be used as an eraser. And so you can rub things out with it. We don't think about rubbing when we say the word rubber anymore, but that's where it came from. So much of language is full of things like that. So something like fancy. Fancy starts as the word fantasy. As in, you think of something... And then what you think of is probably something you don't have, and that means it might be more precious or more interesting or more expensive than what you have. And so next thing you know, you have this word that starts as fantasy as in some mental image, and then you have this word fancy that in American refers to daintiness. It's just the weirdest thing. That is how language goes. So that's where wubber comes from in Helen O'Connell's Elmer Fudd Ease. And then, so don't you tell what's this telling? You know what tell comes from? Telling is counting. You'd never think of it. But the kind of pointy-headed way of thinking of it is in German, the cognate of tell is zähl, zählen. And zählen means to count. Now, erzählen is about telling. It's about explaining. But zählen is to count. Now, that means that the word probably starts there, and it did, and we know it in English because of something like, for example, to tell time. You're not announcing the time. What you're doing is counting the time. That's what that originally meant. Or something like a bank teller. Well, what are they telling you? You're out of money. That's, <laughs> what was that? I guess that was a combination of Gail Gordon and Frank Nelson. Anyway, you're out of money, Mrs. Carmichael. That's not what teller means. Teller is a counter. You're counting the money. So, 
After a while, an extended meaning was that you not only count, as in being numerate, but you're just explaining something in general. Because very often when you're counting, you're doing it for the purposes of making something clear, laying out some kind of case. So next thing you know, tell means to narrate a story or to tell on someone. And you have Helen O'Connell up there using the word. I want that dolly, indeed I do. Just the word two. There is so much in two. What does two mean? Well, the first thing you might think of is excess, and so something is too hot. No, I'm not going to play anything from Kiss Me Kate, but too hot, excess. Right, that's true. But then, if you think about it, it's also about addition. And so, I want him to, or me too, unfortunately. So, it's about excess, and it's about addition. But there's also another usage of to that we don't usually think about consciously. Something like, you didn't do it. I did too. Now, that's not that you did it too much, and that's I also did it. That's a different to. That's this to of refutation of an assertion. And so, some of us are familiar with that from other languages. French, for example, has oui as yes, but they do actually have the C that Spanish has, except they use it in a very special way. So, you didn't pay. Tu n'as pas payé. Yes, I did pay. Si, j'ai payé. Not oui, j'ai payé. Si, j'ai payé. Yes, I did pay. Well, in English, just like German has doch and French has si, we use to for that reason. But that means that to, as in T-O-O, is a matter of excessiveness, a matter of addition, and a matter of refutation. Imagine having to learn that little splotch if you're new to English. You can imagine in some word list it'll say that two means excessively. But then you have to learn that it really is this strange little amoeba that spreads its little amoebicals, whatever they're called, over those three different meanings. And this makes you think about a magic thing that we often hear about language where you've got to be really careful. And I refer to Warfianism, the language's thought hypothesis, the idea that the way your language is built your language's grammar, and the way your language happens to divide words up among components of experience shapes the way you process reality. It's a gorgeous, seductive, Chanel number no. 5 perfumed kind of idea. But you've got to be really careful because it makes less and less sense as anything major, anything significant, the closer you look at it. So, for example, in a language like Spanish, saber, and conocer are both to know. Saber is to know a fact. Conocer is to know a person. And you've got that in a lot of European languages. And you can read it said that that means that somebody who speaks a language like that is more sensitive to the contours of knowing than we Anglophone boobs who just have our stupid little verb now and that's it that covers both. Okay, and you kind of want to believe that. But you have to be careful because here's a particularity of our language. We have this word T-O-O, two, and it refers to all three of these things, addition, excess, and refutation. Now, based on that, wouldn't you think that that makes us kind of crude? We've got this one word that covers all those things. So, for one thing, we're crude in that we're less sensitive to the difference between knowing your spouse and knowing what two plus two is. So, we're already, we're, we're barbarians there. But isn't it even worse 
that we have this one word that allows us to not think about the difference between all three of those things. Clearly, that doesn't quite work. And yet, we might look at some other language that combines all those things, and we'd either think that it makes them less sensitive to it, or, I can imagine this, many people would say that that means that these people are uniquely sensitive to the resonances between the additive and the refutational and the excessive. And once again, do we feel that way? Do we feel like there's any exquisite sensitivity? I don't feel terribly sensitive. I just feel like we have this one kind of odd train wreck of a word, and life goes on, and you're doing your podcast from a closet. So, be very careful of your warfianism. It's always interesting to see what languages combine what things, but things like arrival and its message that you can learn what people are like through the way their grammar is put together, no. I loved Arrival. There's something about Amy Adams, also anything she's in, I like. Great movie, entertaining movie. But as I often tell people who have not gone to the trouble of listening to every episode of this weird podcast, I did do one on Arrival. You cannot take Arrival as science. It was exquisite entertainment. Is it the fella or the dolly or the dolly or the fella? And it's funny, if you watch this, and you can go right online and see it, you can look at poor Jimmy Dorsey. This band was so good. This was one of the crackest ensembles ever assembled in the history of humankind. Poor Jimmy has no rhythm. He's back there during this part, kind of shuffling back and forth. A mannequin could do it with more grace. It's interesting how people are. But is it the fella? It. What about it? This word, it. Part of what I mean by thinking that every word of this silly little song has meaning is that it has an interesting history. You know, it used to be hit, and it makes sense that it used to be hit. It used to be, for example, him, her, and hit. Wouldn't that be a better language? Things are supposed to make sense. Get the ducks in a row. It alone is like this headless duck. It's like it's hanging in the window of a Chinese restaurant. Never mind. Anyway, so him, her, hit. Or to go back to Old English, the paradigm for he, she, and it was Old English voice. He was hey. She was hey. It really was hey. And then it was hit. And so hey, hey, and hit. That's how it went. And it made sense. You can see remnants of this all the way up into the 20th century. So Zora Neale Hurston, black woman writer, pops up with hits all the time in her work in Jonah's Gourd Vine one of her novels, just one of many examples of somebody who says, not it'll turn back on you, but hit, hit'll turn back on you, hit'll turn back on you. It can confuse you sometimes. All of a sudden there's hit, and then you realize, oh, this makes sense if it's it. Or there was one Rourke Bradford, and he was neither black nor female, but he had grown up among black people in Tennessee around the turn of the 20th century. And he has a story called John Henry, where there are sentences he has Black people lovingly quoted, saying things like, it's just the way it is. Just like that. This was not something made up. This was because the huh held on longer in some varieties of English than others. And that means that even the little word it is actually shortened. It's something that many people would have heard as a contraction, just like you say love them and leave them for love them and leave them. Well, it really, quote unquote, should be hit. So kind of like last time we talked about how the word that can go to as, and so them as holds them. Well, in the same way, hit went to it, and now nobody is the wiser. 
I'm not sure why, but when they showed this wonderful short on Matinee at the Bijou, they, before it, had a little bit of, on the soundtrack, the Dorsey Band playing one of their former minor hits. It was an instrumental. It was called Contrasts. And so in my head, Rubber Dolly is preceded by this lovely saxophone solo that Jimmy Dorsey was playing. I have since learned that this was a cut called Contrasts. And I want you to hear this because it's something that's always playing in my head randomly just because of me making that tape recording during the Carter administration. But here, listen to this. This is a bit of Contrasts. that takes me back to hormonal adolescence. I remember. (laughs) To me, that feels like animal crackers for a reason I won't discuss, and also being just about to pop. In any case, she says, our Helen O'Connell, she says, I know I've been up to trick. Fix teaches a lesson. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Here's the lesson. Old English has a word fisk. Now, something's going to happen to fisk. It's not just going to stay there because language always changes. Well, there are two things that happen to fisk. One is that the consonants at the end switch positions and you got fix. And so there are places where people said fix for fisk. But then fisk could also become fish, just like the word for ship used to be skip. So, Fisk becomes fish. So, originally, you had a fisk, meaning fish. Some places, people were calling them fixes. Other places, people called them fish. That won out, and so now we fish. Talk about what we now do to potatoes. If you get tired of potatoes, you're going to mash that thing. Well, that word used to be mask. Now, something's going to happen to mask. It's not just going to stay that way. It could become max. And so you could max your potatoes, and that is exactly what happened in some places. Or you might mash the potatoes. That happened to win out. Okay, now here's where this is going. Old English has a word, and that word is ask. Now, there are two things that can happen to ask. In some places, it's going to become ax. You just know it. Happened in a lot of places. It's still there. And that is where black And actually, many white speakers in America get it because people who were saying ax, which was a natural development from ask because it had happened with words ending in sk all over the vocabulary, 
That's the people who came here. So that's ax. Then in other places it became ash. And believe it or not, there were places where the word for ask was pronounced ash. But that didn't win out. You never know how these things are going to go. Ax one. And that's why that's so common in non-standard Englishes. So the word fix can teach you that because I always hear the word fix and I think, you know, there but for the grace of chance is the way I might be referring to tilapia or mackerel. By the way, hello, Slate listeners. We have an important message for you. By now, you probably know about Slate's membership program, Slate Plus. It's a subscription that gives you ad-free versions of every Slate podcast. You can get this show and others like Dear Prudence and the Political Gab Fest, all without any ad breaks. But if you're a reader of Slate, as well as a listener, you might have noticed that Slate.com recently installed a paywall. So we wanted you to know that a Slate Plus membership will also give you access to everything on our website, from our recent coverage of the coronavirus, to Who Counts, our ongoing investigation into whose voices will be left out of the 2020 election. We're committed to keeping you informed about everything this year has in store. And your support is extremely important to helping us continue this important work. You can sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com slash plus, or your show's usual Slate Plus URL. And if you're already a member, just log in at slate.com slash login. By the way, I think it's time for the kids to go to bed. That's the end of the show for today. Oh, here's uh, Fupa Poopa. John, that's our play out. Hope you've had some nice peach jello at some point before your day ended. So, are the kids in bed? Okay, if you want to know the skinny on the new announcement about the word fuck, then you need to listen to my Slate Plus this time, and I guarantee you it's actually kind of a fun one. Here is more Rubber Dolly. I want that dolly, indeed I do, but what a fella. Nothing seems more basic than want. What kind of homily is this going to be? Nothing seems more basic than the word want. You figure that if English has a lot of words that it's borrowed from other languages, want is not going to be one of them. That seems like one of the basic Wonder Bread, meat and potatoes sorts of words. But no, it's not. Want is a Viking word. Our English word for want is will. That's how it really used to go. And it still kind of is. We talk about our will and you talk about he would do as he would and we mean he would do as he wanted. So it's still there under the surface, but mainly we use want. That was a Norse word. And so many of our basic words are Norse. It's ominous how many. So it's one thing for people to come and to lend their words like schlemiel and putts and things like that. That's the Yiddish loans into English. But, you know, time passes and the people basically are learning English. And so it's only so many Yiddish words. And usually we have to work to think about which words those are, especially beyond roughly schlemiel, putts, and chutzpah. But with Norse, it's frankly so many things that you would think would be native. You've got sister, skill, skin, sky, ugly, window, wing, die, get, give, hit, seem, take, both, though, till, all of those words. And by the hit, I mean the hit as in not the hit as the pronoun. All of those words are foreign and it just goes on and on and on. It is at least many hundred and certainly much more than that, depending on how you count it. And it's funny, there are so many of those words that you really have to imagine a special situation where these Vikings aren't only not 
learning English well, but they are infiltrating the language with their own stuff. It's clear that Norse ended up being much more than just a dusting into Old English. And it's interesting, there's an article right now that is arguing that actually what I'm speaking right now is Norse. That it's not that English has this unusual volume of words from this once foreign language. These guys, the guys are named Joseph Emmons and Jan Farland, have actually argued, and these are, these are linguistics people, that really Old English became Norse. It stopped being English at all. And so all these Norse words are because what people were speaking was Norse, which was affected somewhat by English rather than the other way around. And it's funny. It's one of those arguments. Frankly, I don't believe it for a minute, but I respect the argument because it's very clever. And not only are there so many words, but all sorts of other peculiar things about English actually come from Norse. For example, think about how we use prepositions. You're told not to put prepositions at the end of a sentence, but frankly, that rule is utter bullshit. It's just the way English works. And so this is what I'm thinking of. This is the woman I came with, and so on. Notice, though, that if you're learning almost any other language, you've got to get past that. There's no such thing in Spanish as the woman I spoke with, la mujer quien yo hablaba con. No, that just doesn't work. Even if you're not good at it, you can feel that doesn't work. It's one of those things you feel like this is only English. It's kind of like the sound ah. Usually when you learn another language, you gradually learn that there's no sound like cat, hat, banana. You got to get rid of that. Same thing with stranding prepositions. But you know where you do get stranded prepositions? In varieties that descended from Old Norse today, such as Norwegian, Swedish, and Danish. Not all of them, but in some of the varieties there, you can strand just like you can strand in English. And English can only have gotten it from them. So you never know how these things are going to work. And frankly, it would be tidier if the Norse-speaking Vikings came here and imposed their language, because that's what the Anglo-Saxons and Jutes did. They come over here. There are Celtic languages here. Notice that I'm pretending that I'm British when I'm in a closet in Queens. So they end up in England, and there are these Celtic languages, like Welsh spoken, and somehow, nobody knows exactly how this worked, they end up imposing English pretty much all over the island. Well, if they did that, then if these Danes and Norwegians come and overpower these Angles, Saxons, and Jutes, and it's clear they weren't very good at learning English, why wouldn't they simply just have imposed their Norse, given that they ran the whole outfit for a very long time? King Knut? Knut was a Dane. England had been taken over. So wouldn't they have brought their Norse over and imposed it. The whole argument doesn't work for reasons that would bring us too far into the weeds, but still it's fascinating and it's a word like want that gets me thinking about it these days. By the time, fella. Is it the fellow that Ali? Fellow is also from Norse. That starts as fee lay. Somebody who's laying down money is a fellow. And then that gradually extended to referring to somebody who you're friends with. But at first it was a fee layer, and that's where we get fellow and feller and fella. Heck, you know what she really wanted to say. She wanted to say hell, but you don't say that in the media in the early 1940s. But it's interesting how heck works. And so not hell, but heck, what's the process? So it's not like Ellie and Nellie. It's not Robert, Bobbert, 
and it's not Dorothy Dolly. What is it that gets us from hell to heck? And it's funny, the stories that heck attracts. For some reason, people are very fertile about heck. Apparently, there's an Icelandic volcano with the name heck or something like it, and it was proposed in one place that we say heck because we're shouting off the name of this volcano when we get upset. Then apparently one of the small parts of a loom is called a heck. And so one person, it was actually more than one person, suggested that we say heck based on the name of that little part. But that would be like saying, oh, crankshaft. You know, why would you use that little part? Then some people say, well, it's short for bye, Hector. Uh, bye, Hector. But who's Hector? And why would that spread. Really, what heck is, is it's one of these nonsense formations. It actually is kind of like Robert Bobbert. It's like, you know, oh gosh, instead of oh God. It's why some people say shite instead of shit. The word was never pronounced that way. It's just that here we are. Or like, oh fudge for oh you know what. Because you need these little words. And it's funny, you find heck in all sorts of places. In these old comics, I talked about Nako the monk. You find people saying, oh, that person can go to heck. I don't know if people have actually said, go to heck, but they said it in those comics, and I'm presuming that that was because you couldn't have somebody say hell in a comic. Or, there was also hey. People used to be able to say, what the hey? So burlesque comedians had to keep their language clean, even if they've got, you know, kind of a certain amount of discreet striptease and a certain general air of the gutter. You had to keep the language clean. And so they would say, cheese and crackers for Jesus Christ. So, ah, cheese and crackers, what are you doing here? That sort of thing. And then there was also, what the hey, for what the hell. And you can hear, for example, Daffy Duck say it in Rabbit Season, a cartoon many of us have probably seen. But notice how he says, what the hell. A Looney Tunes character can't say hell ever. I'm not aware of the word ever being used in any of the thousand, of which I've seen, as you know, way too many. But Rabbit Seasoning does open with this line. Awfully unsporting of me, I know, but what the hey, I gotta have some fun. Or here, we can listen to it being used by actual burlesque comedians in one more time, this 1951 musical with Phil Silver's Top Banana. I know I used it last time, but I had to use it for this. They're actually explaining the origin of the term Top Banana and listen to what they say instead of what the hell. Hey, Mr. Biffle, what's a Top Banana? See what I'm up against, Mo? Johnny come lately. A Top Banana is the first comedian in a burlesque show. It comes from an old burlesque bit. Don't talk about it, Pinky. Do it for him. Oh, right. Watch this, kid. I just came back from the fruit market. I have three bananas, and I'm going to give you one of them. Oh, just a minute. You only have two bananas there. No, there's three bananas here, and I'll prove it to you. One banana have I. That's right. Two bananas do I. That's true. One banana and two bananas make three bananas. Well, you're out of your mind. There's three In your own words, I'll show you you're wrong. Go ahead. One banana have I. Yeah. Two bananas do I. Yeah. One banana and two bananas makes... By golly, he's right. <laughs> Say, Mo, will you join me in a banana? I'd be delighted. One banana for you. Thank you. And a banana for me. Well, how about me? You eat the third banana. What, what the hey? See what I mean, kid? Third banana, second banana, top banana. You know there's more Whoopa Whoopa John? Saw a crow 
flying low, Fupa Whoopa John saw a crow flying low, several miles beneath the snow. Whoa, John, that's my Burl Eyes imitation. Anyway, yeah, you're thinking, how is this about linguistics? And even before this, he's talking about some damn doll. Well, let's go out on some other 40s boogie woogie. This is 1942. This is one of my favorite three minutes ever. And I know I say that a lot, but I mean it here. I learned this when I burrowed into my father's stack of 78s. And luckily we had something that could play them. And I used to listen through them. And this one was my favorite by far. I listened to it endlessly when I was 14. I thought the voice was sexy then, but I only had the aural image in my head. But now you can see this online. And to use the form of appreciation of 1942, this was Ella May Morse. Ella Mae Morse, you can see her online, she was a, a closet black person, actually. She really was. She was doing what used to be called passing, as one sometimes chose to back then. You can look her up. NPR did a really neat segment on her. But she is utterly charming doing this song when you can actually see the short. Folks, technically, it's a soundie, for those of you who care about these things. But anyway, this is Cow Cow Boogie. I love this to pieces. <laughs> Folks, this is my 100th episode. I never dreamed when I started that I would ever reach this point. When Mike asked me to do this, my first thought was, even as late as 2016, why would I want to talk instead of write? I like to write. But somebody near and dear to me said that podcasting was the new thing and that I should do this. And so many of you remember that Mike and Bob were doing their version and all of a sudden there was this stranger subbing for the summer and doing interviews. And after about eight of those, I told Mike that if I was going to stay on, I wanted to do shows where I just spew. And Mike allowed it. Thanks so much to him for allowing me to defile what he and Bob had so lovingly created. I started folding the show tunes in, and after a while I stopped even pretending that they pertained to the topic. And here we are, and for some reason, you listen. I must say thank you to you fans of this weird thing for following me for all these shows. Thank you for all of your emails and tweets. I am hugely flattered. This podcasting thing's changed my life in many ways, and I never expected that this thing that I come up with blindly, bit by bit, would make sense to so many people. I try so hard to answer as many of your messages as I can, and I apologize for how backed up I'm getting, but please know that this show is quite simply the me who wakes up in the morning. Not the crankier stuff I do on race that I know a lot of you also catch here and there that I never mention on this show until now, but it's this that is me when I wake up. I really am about eight years old, and thank you for letting me share my toys with you for 100 episodes. All of you remind me why I'm alive. Thank you. You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. 
No little joke here, the way I usually do. Instead, just thank you all again. And a special thanks especially to Mike Volo, my editor, and the originator of this podcast, who has so graciously allowed me to make this show my own. If we have to do more than another two shows from the closet, by the way, I promise to get a better Mike. Not a better Mike Volo, of course. That actually was <laughs> kind of a joke and a bad one. Anyway, for now, I am John That's all there is. There isn't any more.